We're in part two of this series. Uh, last week we compared the church to an orchestra, and so I think this is kind of a good configuration because it's like we've all gathered on the lawn, and you know you've got the Edwards, and they're the I don't know the reed section, and then you got the 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 match clinics, and they're the brass section, and the Maynards I don't know they're the timpani percussion section or whatever. And we're as a church, you know, we've gathered together, and this is true, you know, no matter whether we're talking about Sunday or any other day of the week, we've gathered together and we're like performing this symphony for God. I just I think that's such a wonderful way to think about who we are and what we do and what church is all about. And not just church service, but but church, church life. You know, you got people who have different capabilities and, and uh, you know, so a French horn or whatever instrument you learn to play in fifth grade on its own, doing its own thing, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Nobody goes to French horn solo concerts as far as I know. Somebody's going to tell me about one, but but it's, it's the magic happens when we come together and everybody is playing those notes on the page that God has given us to play and we're playing for the glory of God. That's, that's what church is. We're all just part of this bigger thing. So if that's true, being involved in church life isn't some ideal. It isn't something like, well, if I clear my schedule and everything works out, you know, I should do it and it's, it's great. It's not just an ideal, it's an imperative, now, I fear some of us here are going to hear that in the way that a lot of Americans hear things like that. We're going to hear, oh, yeah, it's good for me, kind of like eating veggies or recycling or drinking more water. I may not do it, but I kind of generally know that it's good for me to be involved and engaged in the church community. Um, so, you know, if I can, I'll participate. I'll get more involved. I'm not saying it's a good idea. I'm saying engagement in church life for the Christian is indispensable. Like, it's not something that we can kind of pick and choose. It's part of the definition of what it means to be a Christian. And some of you are thinking, like, we're here. Why are you talking to us about what it means to be involved? And I'm talking about, like, getting more involved, playing our instruments more to the glory of God, getting more engaged. So all the togetherness and fellowship, they're not add-ons to kind of an economy entry-level Christianity 101. They're not like, oh, as I'll buy the extended warranty. That, that means I'm really serious. No, if we're Christians, we are engaged and involved in this whole symphony to the praise to the glory of God. That's what it's all about. So we're in this series called Myth and Mystery, and we've been talking about how we have uh, our bad ideas about church have often created bad interactions with church because we just have a misunderstanding of what church is and can and should be, and then it's just caused us to engage or withdraw in ways that are not healthy for us and not healthy for the church. And, and I don't know that anybody like hears the word church and is like, oh, I'm so excited, church. Maybe some of you, because you've been doing church all your life. I know, I see a nod or two, but I don't know that you just go out and shout church in the Mall of America and people are like, have positive associations with that concept. And I think they don't have positive associations because there are bad ideas, there are bad myths around what church is, can, and should be. So we're going to be talking about a, a, a modern American misunderstanding of church that even impacts the way you read the Bible. We're going to talk about why it's tempting, but it's too easy to kind of avoid church. It's tempting, and we get it. And we're going to talk about what church engagement looks like kind of in this pandemic, where we're sort of redefining how we do this. Like, what does it mean to... I went up to somebody this morning, and I said hi, and I started to shake their hand, realized I couldn't shake their hand, and then I'm like, I don't know what step two is. That was always step two. Hi, shake your hand, and then on to the conversation, and it just threw me for a loop. I don't have a plan B. What does church look like? 
in a pandemic. So we're going to be looking at three passages. You can read them ahead if you want, but it's Romans 12, 1, Romans 15, 5 through 7, and Romans 16, 1. And we're going to, begin, we're going to be looking at those passages kind of as like uh, thematic high points in this letter that Paul is writing to this church that he's never even visited. So he's telling them universal truths about church because he's never been there. He's not reacting to something he's seen. He's just saying this is what church is supposed to be. Romans 12, 1, 15, 5 through 7, and 6, 1. A while back, I was driving somewhere with the kids, and we were listening to the radio, and uh, this song came on, and I recognized the song on the radio as a remake from a song that was popular when I was in high school, so not very long ago. And uh, I, the kids were enjoying it, and so I got excited, like, oh, hey, I want you to hear the original. And I didn't tell them that. I just got my phone out, hooked it up to the speakers, because cars are amazing nowadays, and started playing the original. And one of my children, I don't want to name any names, Avery, was like, what is this? This is awful. Well, I mean, this is not as good as the original. I'm like, no, no, no. That's, you're hearing the original. This song was written by this Irish band, the Cranberries, and it came out like in the 90s. It's an awesome song. You're hearing the whatever remake. This is no good. And they're like, no, I don't like it. It's not good. How can you not like it? It's the original. You can't prefer the remake. I don't know. We could have a whole debate about that. But the problem is, is that the new band just stole it. Now, she likes it or my kids like it, or people like it, because they're used to it. It's what's familiar. They're used to the remake, and I like the original because it's what I'm used to. I don't know if we can assess really the equality of the musicianship and the singing and all that, but it's what we're familiar with. I think the original is better. The kids think the remix is better. We're going to talk about an idea that is going to sound wrong, like hearing a remake that you're not familiar with, because modern Americans are used to an inferior remake to an ancient idea. So when I tell you the ancient idea, your first reaction is going to be like, that's not right, that's, not, that's wrong. I don't think that's right, I don't think that's what the Bible says. And I'm telling you it is, but it's going to sound wrong because as modern Americans, we're used to the remake. So here's a familiar verse. Romans 12, 1. This is going to be helpful if you happen to have your Bibles and can look along, power them up, turn them on if you can see them in the sunlight. Romans 12, 1. Even, even if you, you might have this memorized, you know it. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Ah, it's a good verse. We are familiar with it. You can see how Paul's kind of like tying the idea into these Old Testament themes of sacrifice like they did at the temple and the altar, and he's updating it, and he's saying, you are a living sacrifice to God. You can kind of see what he's getting at there. You know how uh, you can get a Bible with your name printed on the cover? You know, you can pay a little bit of extra money. Those are really helpful for us at church because when you leave them here, we know who's not reading their Bible at home. So it's really good for us to be able to judge you. But um, a few years ago, I saw this company that was taking that personalization concept to the next level. Not only would they put your name on the cover, they would actually put your name inside the Bible. Now, this is wild. Every time there was a U in the Bible, they would pull out the U and they would put in 
your name. So it was like a personalized, customized Bible. I mean, so it's like 7,000 times in the Bible it would do this. And it actually would go a step further. If there was a place where it was talking about like your spouse, it would take out the, the you know, husband, wife, whatever, and then it would put in your spouse's name. This is true because I saw like a little picture of it on their website advertising it. So this, the book Song of Solomon, you know, that's a book we don't crack open all that often. <laughs> it would actually say you and your spouse's name, Song of Solomon. So Patrick and Kareen, Song of Solomon. I don't think I want that personally. I think that's a little, that's a little strange. But 7,000 times in the Bible, it'll take out the word you and put in your name. And that sounds great, right? I mean, the Bible is for me. Let's personalize the Bible. That seems commendable on the surface. God is speaking to me. It's me and God. One problem, one problem. Most languages, you guys are going to get a tiny little grammar lesson, not that this is my area of expertise, but I think you're going to like this. Most languages have a word that English does not. We just, it doesn't exist in our language. Um, and, and this includes most languages today, but it also includes ancient languages like Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic from which the Bible was translated. They have a word that just does not exist in the English. In fact, the problem we have is in English, the word you can be singular, just Patrick, or it can be you, crowd on the lawn. So the word can be singular, and the word you can also be plural. Let's get a little bit tricky because it's not often clear which is which. So what do our, uh, our Southern American friends do? How did they solve that problem of you and you all? Contraction, y'all, right? Now, it does not feel right for me to say y'all, so I apologize. I'm going to say it a few times, but I feel like a fraud <laughs> saying it, y'all. But that is a good way. Like in, in Northern America and us Northern Americans, what would we say instead of y'all? We don't say y'all. We'd say you guys, right? You guys, and I like that a little better. You can actually buy Bibles that will wor work this into the translations. It's kind of interesting. So anyway, you have y'all, which means you plural, you guys, you plural. So there are 4,700 times in the Bible where the Bible translates the English word you, but it actually means y'all. It actually means all y'all, right? That's how a Southerners really, if they really want to cast a wide net, not just y'all, but all y'all. So, in fact, this is, this is Americans who already we can't see that distinguishment because of our English language. So we read the Bible and we see the word you and we tend to interpret it as me because I'm an individual pioneering American born with the spirit of individualism of Henry Ford and, and, I, and, and Edison. You know, that's who I am, me, me. But the Bible's actually saying, y'all, y'all. It's very important distinction that we know this, that we know what's going on. In fact, this is kind of off topic, but I thought it was so fascinating. In the King James Version, you know how most of us are like, King James, it's so weird, these, thys, thous, all that kind of stuff. Did you know that the the in King James is a second person singular? So it's you, and then the you in King James is y'all. They had a reason that they used that language. That, was, that existed, and then we updated, and we lost it. So... Evidently, what we need is a Southern Standard version of the Bible to help us know when the Bible's saying you or when the Bible's saying y'all, a Southern Standard version. So I want to read Romans 12.1, the Offer Your Bodies passage, in the Southern Standard version. This is what uh, Hebrew language scholar Tim Mackey points out. It should read like this. I think this is great. Therefore, I urge y'all brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer y'all's bodies. I know, it's ridiculous. 
as a living sacrifice, I urge you to offer all y'all's bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular. So do you see what Paul's doing there? He's taking this big funnel, this big plural, all y'all, and he's saying, you, all y'all, are offering one sacrifice. Not bunches of sacrifices, but one. You take your bodies and you're making one offering to God. That's a very important distinction that we cannot see in the English language unless we kind of look behind the veil a little bit. That's pretty fascinating. So grammatically wrong back down the south, but theologically correct. Now, the letter in Romans, if you read the entire thing, we love to pull that one verse out and we love to pick and choose verses here and there. But if you start at Romans 1.1 and you read all the way to the end of chapter 16, you're going to see a very clear theme. Paul is talking to this church that is this gender, ethnic, cultural mix of people. It's just this jumble of people and everybody has come to church with their own right way of doing things. And so the Hebrew people were like, we are the original." You need to do church this way. This is the way we've been doing church for thousands of years. They call it synagogue. And the Gentile people were like, no, 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 we're the remix. You guys are old-fashioned. You're not going to reach anybody that way. We're the remix. You need to do it this way. And Paul was saying, listen, you, y'all need to come together and offer a singular sacrifice to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do you see what he's trying to say here? It's not just me saying, I'm going to do my own thing for God. You do your own thing for God. We'll all figure it out. Customized Bible, you version, personalized my name in every verse in the Bible. He's saying, we need to figure this thing out. It's, it's, it's us playing in this orchestra together. Because too many people are like, hey, you know what? My way is right, so I'm just going to do my own thing. I'll take my instrument, and I'll start my own orchestra. Paul says, no, that misses the point. You take your trombone and go home. That totally misses the point of the orchestra. You work hard to take your part in the full symphony, playing together. Being a part of church life isn't an ideal. It is an imperative, and it is literally, the concept is literally embedded in the text all through Scripture. It's pretty fascinating. Romans uh, also says, this is another kind of highlight passage, verses, uh, chapter 15, verses 5 through 7. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement, God who gives endurance, encouragement, give y'all the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ had. So endurance, encouragement, he, you need to have that mindset for one another. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can see Paul's tapping into that symphony orchestra choir idea. One mind, one voice. Verse 7, accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. There's an increasingly popular notion, uh, especially under, in, 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 here in America. It's just, I feel like it's gaining ground all the time. But it's something like, I don't know, it's this, it's this separation of, not church and state, but church and individual. It's this idea that, you know, I love Jesus. Jesus is awesome. I want to be like Jesus. Church is messed up. I don't want to have anything to do with that. So I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. I'm going to navigate my relationship with God sans church, without the church. Now, I totally get it. Because for some people, you might even think, you know, there are times where I feel like the church even inhibits my relationship with God. I could be a better Christian if it weren't for all these people. They're a real pain in the neck. This is frustrating sometimes. So I would be better off in my Christianity if I navigated my faith without other Christians. Now, I know some of you are like, that sounds ridiculous. But this is a popular idea. You don't really need to be connected or involved with 
church. Now, I get it, I get it, I get it. I don't like to stereotype people, but you know how humans are. We're, we're kind of awful sometimes. You know what I mean? Have you met some humans? They're not always that great. Uh, earlier this week, uh, this Monday actually, my daughter Taya was uh, in a tea shop, and the ladies in front of her weren't following the mask order, and so these teenage girls behind the counter were required by their company to mention it to them, say, hey, you need to wear a mask and if you're in here. Well, these middle-aged women, women decided that this was the moment that they were going to seize their destiny as independent-minded Americans, and they were going to unload all their political and personal angst on this clerk in a tea shop. And so they're just, you can't, you know, tell me why all this stuff. And the poor girl at the counter, I mean, crying. I mean, what, what do you do? Like, these are moments where you, only, you feel like you only see them shared in Facebook videos. Like, oh, that happens other places, but not here. And, and, and it happened here. So this person decided that they're just going to be a terrible human and decide that they're just going to unload on this poor girl who's just trying to follow her manager's orders, who's just trying to follow the governor's orders, who's just trying to follow some CDC guideline. And I know you all have different opinions. Y'all, I did it. Ah. I know you all have different opinions about all those things. But come on, grow up. Seriously, you have to take that out on some kid? Like, I hope none of you are doing that. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to them. So this poor girl is crying, sad, upset, and all Taya can do is she's like the next in line, because what do you do now? Like, hmm, I'd like a medium, you know, whatever, chai, whatever, please. All Taya could do, and I commend her for this, was just kind of on, apologize on behalf of all humanity. I'm sorry for humans. We're really bad, you know. Sorry about that. Because humans are a pain. We, we can be really frustrating and annoying sometimes. And some humans discover Jesus and we join a church, and we try to shake off that old self, but, you know, it still kind of clings on, and we've got problems and bad habits, and so we're beginning to build this group, this orchestra, this symphony of people with problems and bad habits, but, I mean, and listen, I love you guys. I love coming to church. I love being around people, but some of you guys can be pains, too, and, and I'm not, you know, I'm being very careful who I look at. <laughs> look down at the grass here. Whatever criticism you have for the church, whatever it is, whatever you think the church needs to, uh, there is someone else in this small body of people that is saying the opposite thing you're saying. I mean, it just, it's just the way it is. You're like, no, everybody agrees with me. No, you just follow people on Facebook that agree with you, but not everybody agrees with you. So whatever frustrations, whatever annoyances, whatever you have, there's somebody out there that has the exact opposite criticism. So church isn't exempt from these walking problems that we call humans. So maybe, maybe at one time, some setting, you got your feelings hurt. It happens, unfortunately, sadly. I mean, we're, we're humans. Maybe we're not validating your pers perspective. Maybe we're not being as serious with some doctrinal point that you think is really important. And so you have this light bulb moment and you think, oh, they don't get it. I get it. I'm going to take my xylophone and I'm going to go home and do my own thing. I don't need this symphony. I don't need this orchestra. I'm just going to do my own thing. They don't get it. Good old American individualism. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to pack up my piccolo and go home. The book of Romans is this letter, a church he hasn't met, and it's a stratified social culture. They were socially distanced in terms of how they interacted with one another. 
So they're slaves, masters, educated, illiterate, different ethnicities, genders, cultures, all of it. All of it came with different social norms. And so Paul writes in Romans 15, 5, he says, may the God who gives endurance. Isn't that weird to think about that you need endurance to go to church? I know some of you are like, well, your sermons can get a little long, Patrick. No, I'm talking about endurance. To get along, to, to, to coordinate and to play uh, music with one another. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you, y'all, that same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then just as Christ accepted you, but you don't know what they're saying and doing and thinking. Accept one another in order to bring praise to God. Quitting when church life is hard does not glorify God. Enduring, putting in the work of being united with different and difficult people is how the church brings glory to God. I want to I do just, just one last thing. We're going to read Romans 16, 1 here in a second, but I kind of want to put a nail in this coffin uh, of individualism, like this, this idea of like thinking that I can just do it on my own. It's all me. It's all about me. When that sneaks into our Christianity, we're in real trouble. So I just want to just, just kill this thing because some of you are thinking like, oh, yeah, still, it's just me and God. I've been working on home improvement projects for a few years. Um, so a couple years ago, we had this wall between our living room and our kitchen. We're like, why is there this wall? It only went two-thirds of the way up. So you could kind of shout at each other from one room to the other. We just need to take this thing down. Open room concept. Let's just get rid of this thing. And so me, I, I detail carefully planned everything out step by step. No, I just took a hammer and I just started ripping the wall down. And so it's been a multi-year process to make this thing uh, happen, but we're getting there. And now if you were to come over, uh, like we've got new cabinets and flooring, the wall's gone. It's all, I mean, it looks pretty good. And, and I, I did it all by myself with my own two hands. It was just me. It was just Patrick and nobody else. I didn't have any help. Nobody else like swung. It was just me. And I'm kind of proud of that. And I don't know if this is just all humans or just guys or just me, but I like, I get a sense of like self-sufficiency. I feel like I was like remodeling and I'm like, man, if the apocalypse ever happened, I'd be in good shape because I could remodel a kitchen like as if I've got this competency. I've got this. So, all right. And I even bragged about it a little on social media. I took pictures. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't say, hey, this is me. This is what I've done. But I, that's what I wanted people to notice. Oh, look at you. So if somebody were to come over and they'd be like, oh, nice job, Patrick. Uh, you did this all yourself. I'd be like, yeah, I did it all by myself. I didn't have anybody else's help. Oh, so these cabinets, uh, you, you, you uh, went, got an axe and chopped down the trees and planed the wood and made these cap. Well, no, I mean, I, I got them from Ikea. I, I put them together like Legos. I, I put them together. I mean, somebody, I guess somebody else made them, I guess. Okay, the cabinet, somebody else. Oh, uh, the tile on the wall there. Oh, you, you uh, went out and mined the clay. I don't know how they make tile. <laughs> you got the clay and fired it in the kiln and, you know, well, no, I, you know, I bought it at Menards. It was, it was pretty cheap. I actually couldn't even find it. I had to have somebody tell me where it was. Oh, okay, so you put it on the wall. Okay, okay. Uh, what about uh, the flooring? Did you chop down those trees too? You could t- cut, cut down a fort? And, well, no, I did. Yeah, it wasn't me. Uh, what about the idea to remodel? Where'd you get that? Well, oh, that was Corrine, actually. She, she came up with it. It's her idea. She had some ideas that she wanted. It was her vision. Where did she get the idea? Well, she saw some 
kitchens on Pinterest that she thought looked really nice. Okay, so Patrick, just, just so I'm hearing you correctly, you followed a detailed blueprint that someone else made using materials that someone else crafted following someone else's ideas, and you're saying that's all you? Well, of course not. We're, it's so silly to think that. It's so ridiculous to think that we are completely on our own. And maybe there's some Ted Kaczynski type out there that is literally going to try to live on their own, but nobody considers that healthy. Nobody thinks, like, good for that guy. Individualism, this idea that I can do it all on my own, is a myth. And that sounds wrong to American ears. That sounds wrong. Wait, no. I'm, it's just me. Now, personal responsibility, yes. Individualism, no. And I know we were raised in the spirit of American exceptionalism, following in the footsteps. We have pioneer uh, blood in our veins. But it's just a myth. We need people. But it's just me and Jesus. Well, me and my Bible and Jesus. Well, me and maybe a hymnal and, and a few devotional books and my favorite podcast. So it's just me and my Bible and some songs and books and sermons and Jesus. No, you need people. You need others. You are not going to be viably healthy without a community around you. You needed someone to share their knowledge of faith with you, someone to baptize you, some smart person who studied Hebrew and Greek to translate the scriptures into English so you could read it, someone else to write the songs, someone to remind you of how much God loves you when you forget that fact. You need someone who truly cares about you to point out your blind spots and to gently challenge you to be more like Christ. Me and Jesus now, me and a few hundred other people maybe and Jesus. Most often the Bible describes the church as a body. That's Paul's favorite analogy is a body. And nobody, if you cut off your pinky in some sort of woodworking accident, if my home remodel, I chop off my pinky, nobody is like, good for that pinky. It's striking out on its own. A spirit of individualism. That pinky's going to make it. It can do whatever it wants. That finger. No. You know what happens to the finger apart from the body? It dies. You know what happens to the disciple apart from the body? It dies. No, no, no. I don't need the... Yeah. <laughs> You're ridiculous if you think you don't need the body. We all do because we're all just problems walking around. So what does all this mean in a pandemic when, you know, we have, we have like 50 feet between some of you? People keep saying this is all unprecedented, but it's not. It's just unprecedented in our lifetime. But, you know, back in 1918, I was doing some research because I was like, what did those churches do? They didn't have Zoom Back in 1918, what did those churches do? Like, how did they figure this out? There was no YouTube video. They couldn't say, I just watched church online. There was just no way to do that. You know what some of those churches did for church? They, the, the newspapers, because people used to read newspapers, the churches would send in their sermons and hymns, the, the words, and they would, they would send them in the newspaper so you could open up the newspaper on Sunday morning and like try to take your family through the service. Or they would mail members, snail mail members, Bible classes and lessons and songs so that they could, they could at least do the, the bare minimum. And, and sometime in the last 102 years, churches started to meet again. And, and churches started to shake hands and sing and do all that stuff that we miss. They did it, and we're going to do it too. It's going to come back. I know we keep saying, this is the new normal. This is not. We are going to have a point in the future where we can shake hands and hug and sing and do all that stuff again. They, will, they got through it. We will too. That's just the way it is. And so whatever, you know, panic, you're, you're, you're oh, it's all going to, no, we will get through this, and it will be. You have to be creative and diligent and intentional, but we will get through it, but we cannot do it alone. Romans 16.1, greet one another. This is the last verse we'll read. Greet one another 
with a holy kiss. If Paul was in a pandemic, he would be like, greet one another with a holy head nod over your mask. Now, we, we bring up that verse because uh, we like to point out the, it's a cultural oddity. That's the only reason we use that verse, because we say, look how different their culture was. That was so strange. They used to kiss each other, and we don't do that anymore. Well, we don't do it, but lots of places in the world do. Have you ever been surprised kissed when you're visiting some foreign country? It is a strange experience. You go in for a handshake, and then you get one right on the cheek. But we tend to try out this verse just when we're talking about cultural changes. But Paul was doing something important. Paul was taking all this diversity in the church. He was taking the people who said, no, the original, the Hebrew people. We know how it's supposed to do, be. The, the, the Gentile people who say, no, we need to do it a new and different way. And all the people in the middle, this cultural, this stratified society where people had decided they didn't need one another. And he says at the end of his letter, he says, you know what you need to do? Make sure you're greeting one another with a holy kiss. Because all this distinction and this difference, I mean, it's trouble, and we have to work it out, and we have to figure it out, but at the end of the day, we are one, and we need one another. You have to be able to wrap up every conflict, every conversation with a holy kiss. You, you, that's, we have to. Every letter that Paul writes, almost every letter he writes, he wraps it up this way, because I think he's telling you, whatever you got going on, at the end of the day, you need to be able to kiss one another. I don't know that you can angry kiss. I don't know how that would work. It, you have to put aside some things to make that moment happen. Or holy handshake or holy hug or whatever, holy head nod. Being involved in church life isn't just an ideal, it's an imperative. That's what church is. So it glorifies God. We're called to glorify God. That's our meaning, our purpose. We lean into that, we find meaning and purpose in life. But we do it together. That's what church is. We do it together. We cannot do it on our own. God loves you, but you know what God loves you to do is be with y'all. That's what God loves. And God loves us together being this organization, this entity that he redeemed with his own blood. Let's pray, and then we're going to be dismissed.